We are going to be in a number of different passages of Scripture today, and so um, you can have your Bible handy, but you're going to try to be, you'll be flipping a lot of pages today, so it's probably easier just to look up on the screens to keep up with where we're going to go. Um, but to kind of give you context, we're in the middle of a, a, what we'd call a Christmas series, uh, but it's not a traditional or typical Christmas series. We're not going to go to any of the typical passages like Matthew or Luke's record of the Christmas story, because we're kind of asking a, a a more in-depth question uh, about Christmas and about what it really means. So to give you some context for, if you weren't here last week, kind of set things up so you understand where this is coming from. The title of the series is, Do We Really Know or Do You Really Know? We're going to talk about the profound depth of God's love that sometimes we really don't appreciate or don't really understand or don't really know. And this came true for me uh, last month, and I had shared this last week, but I'll share it again, just again, give you some context. Uh, I was in a meeting with some of our leaders, and we were praying for our city, and I started to cry, which I do not cry easily at all, and, uh, and so as we were praying, I, we kind of wrapped up the prayer time, and I kind of gathered myself, and then, then I got in my car and was driving home, so I left the church, I got out on LA Avenue, and I just started sobbing again, and I'm crying, and the reason I was crying is because in the moment, in the meeting, and then even probably 10 times more when I got in my car, I felt this incredible weight, and it wasn't like a burden or a crushing weight. But it was this weight that God actually loves us. Now you think, well, I know that. I go to church. I've read the Bible. But the profound depth that God deeply, deeply loves our church, but deeply loves our city and all the people that make up Simi Valley. And so as I'm driving down L.A., every car that passes, I'm looking at people and seeing people on the side of the road and people walking along and crossing in front of me. And I'm just sobbing, hoping nobody will look into the car and think, what is wrong with that guy? But I was just, because I just felt this, it was more than I had ever felt before. And, and as I'm looking at people, this question just jumps into my mind. Do we really know? I mean, we, it's almost cliche in our culture. God loves you. you. I mean, we say that to people. We say that all the time in church. But what does that actually mean? What does it mean for God to demonstrate his love through Jesus coming and becoming human? What does that mean? What did Jesus actually have to go through to demonstrate how much he loves us and loves the world that we live in? Instead of just leaving me kind of at the cliche level, what we did last week and we're going to do this week, last week we focused on what did it mean for Jesus, who is the God of the universe, to be born, to become human? What did he actually have to go through? What did he have to experience for that to happen for him? It goes far deeper into the story than normally where we'll go because he, there was amazing things that he had to personally go through and limit himself to become human. And then today we want to talk about what did it look like and what did it mean for him to actually live as a human being, to his life. What did he go through? What did he experience? All with one primary focus in mind. I am demonstrating God's love for people through my life, my death, and my resurrection. So kind of digging deeper into the story, we're going to look at a number of different passages, but I want us to understand, and I, I've talked with some people in between services, and this is one of the reasons I wanted to take time to do this, not only because I know God moved on me about a month ago to, to kind of go this direction, but so many times we have a disconnect from God because we're convinced that because Jesus is God, he can't understand us. He can't relate to us. He's distant from us. He doesn't really know us because, come on now, he was God. He could easily be perfect. He could walk on water. He could do miracles. He never really was never tempted to sin because he was God. He couldn't really sin. And because of that, he doesn't really understand me. He's distant from my experience. When you and I look a little deeper into the story, we realize that the opposite is true. Jesus understands us and loves us more than we will ever know. So with that understanding this morning, I want to start with some basic things, five things that Jesus was willing to embrace as a part of being human, fully human. 
Not part human and part God, but fully human, the fullness of the human experience. Now, some of this might seem basic, but this is really important. Jesus willingly embraced physical needs. Now, capture this again. Jesus is fully the God of the universe, but he's fully human at the same time. So this is the God who meets needs. This is the God who has no needs, now has subjected himself to being in need. So just some passages of scripture that remind us of this. Physical needs. said every aspect Jesus experiences. Jesus was thirsty. The basic human need of actually having something to drink, we think, oh, he was God. It was like he had internal Gatorade, right? That he never was thirsty about anything. But it says very, very pointedly in John John 19, verse 28, when Jesus was on the cross, it says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. The basic human need that we have, he experienced. Do you realize Jesus also got hungry? Not only was he thirsty, he was hungry. Matthew chapter 4, verse 2, when Jesus is tempted by the enemy, this is what's crazy. It says, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. I mentioned this last week. That is a huge understatement. If you don't eat for 40 days, you're slightly hungry. Jesus know what it was, knew what it was to be hungry. Jesus actually got tired because when you think, oh, come on, he was God. He never got tired. In fact, he never really had to sleep. But the Bible tells us in John 4, 6, when Jesus encounters this woman, we know we call her the woman at the well, says Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. So understand, Jesus knows to the basics of humanity of what it is to be human. He knows that he, he knows how to thirst, hunger. He knows that he was tired. He experiences all of that. And I think it's important because we always have this idea that Jesus never really had to go through all of that because what he was doing was some kind of hocus-pocus divine thing that we really can't relate to because he was really God. So he was just kind of demonstrating for us, like us poor humans, to kind of understand he was fully immersed in the human experience, fully. And think about this. We don't think about this enough, but so Jesus grew up learning to be a carpenter. That's what his dad was. That was the family trait. So that's, that's what he became. Anybody know a carpenter? I know a really good one. He's sitting here. His name's Keith Hogan. But if you, you can do this afterwards, and Keith's probably not going to appreciate this. Go shake Keith's hands. He's got some really strong hands. You know the things you'll probably find periodically on Keith's hands? Calluses, splinters, maybe a thumb that got caught by a hammer or something like that. That happens, right, Keith? Periodically? Yeah, he's all, sure. Jesus was a carpenter. So did Jesus have, like, perfect, like, palm olive hands all the time that were always soft? No. He had calluses. He probably had splinters. He probably had damage on his hand. My grandfather was a carpenter, and I remember, my, I remember looking at his hands. His hands were always a mess because he was working on things, and when he would work on things, his hands would get roughed up. And I, I think sometimes we don't realize the humanity of Jesus. He's fully human, and that's important because as we move on, you're going to see that more and more he understands us better than we really even understand ourselves. Second thing that Jesus is willing to embrace is that he embraced temptation. This is another one. We always think, ah, he was God. He can't really experience temptation. He can't really be tempted. Yeah, actually, he can, and he was to, to a profound level. In fact, can you imagine when Jesus was tempted? We talked about this last week. Jesus was tempted to use his ability and power as God for his own benefit. Remember, we talked about, can you imagine having the, the ability as God to do anything, to create anything that you wanted to, and being tempted to use that for your own benefit? But listen to what happens in Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. This temptation is recorded for us. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. 
So Jesus has offered what? He's offered a shortcut. He's saying, listen, if you, the devil's saying, listen, if you just give it up right now, if you just worship me because, you know, you're God and you're going to get it in the end anyway. You're going to do all this stuff because, by the way, the enemy knew exactly why Jesus came. He knew he was heading to the cross. It's clear. You're going to get all that, but let me just offer you a shortcut so you don't have to go through all that pain and that suffering. And he was tempting him. Anybody ever been tempted to take a shortcut in life? Raise your hand. If you're human, it's happened to all of us. You're offered something that you know is difficult to attain in life, but somebody comes along and says, you don't have to go through the hard way. There's an easy way. Jesus is being offered an easy way. He's being tempted, which is, that's our life. How many times are you offered fulfillment without any pain? All the time. Our culture, that's what we thrive on. Everything is geared to, you can have this, and it'll cost you nothing. And that's the same thing that Jesus was experiencing, that level of temptation, which we'll talk a little bit more in a moment. The third thing that Jesus was willing to embrace is he was willing to embrace grief. Jesus was fully human. And so, so many times, and, and I, because I'm a pastor, I see this. When someone's going through the loss of somebody or the potential loss of a loved one, there's this sense that we feel that somehow God is absent from our grief. God is not present. Like, God, if you were good, if you were here. In fact, in, in, in John chapter 11, we won't go back there, but I'll read a couple of the verses. But there's this, this scenario that unfolds where Jesus' friend Lazarus actually dies. And then Jesus comes, and when he arrives, both Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus, say the same thing to Jesus. They say this phrase, if only you had been here, you could have saved him. But now you're too late. And sometimes that's our response in grief to God is that if only you would have shown up, if you would have been here, things would be different. But then Jesus shows up and listen to what happens in verses 33 to 36 of John 11. When Jesus saw, he's coming on the scene. It's a, basically a funeral. He's seeing the sisters and what's going on in them. He says, when he saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And then the two most powerful words recorded in one verse in the Bible. It says, Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. Jesus' heart broke. Why did Jesus' heart break? Because when humanity was created, death wasn't a part of the equation. God created you and I to live forever, but sin entered the equation, and with it came death and the dying process. So Jesus, in his full divinity being God and his full humanity comes on the scene and you know with inside of him he knows this is not the way it's supposed to be this is not the way I created things to happen but this is the beauty of Jesus life and his death and his resurrection because Jesus pays the price for sin and the outcome of sin is death and he rises from the dead to be to have power over death so now the two things that you and I fear the most which is sin and death that will destroy us are the things that no longer have power over us but even in this moment, Jesus is feeling the weight of humanity. He's feeling the weight of a loss of a close friend. And some would say, oh, if you read it on the story, then Jesus just raises, raises Lazarus from the dead, and everything's great. Everything's great, great, except the fact that Lazarus died again, didn't he? When was the last time you saw Lazarus walking around Simi Valley? None of us have seen him. Because his resurrection in that moment was only temporary. Because he still died. But the ultimate resurrection comes in the future, when God comes back for his people who've turned to Jesus, and then we experience that resurrection together. But Jesus was in the midst of the grief of the brokenness of humanity, and he allowed himself to feel the depth of that and what that looked like in his life. Then the fourth thing, Jesus willingly embraced rejection and abandonment. Now think about this for a moment. So Luke chapter 4, we're not, I'm not going to have you turn there. It's a great story. 
So just picture yourself in this, this situation. So Jesus grows up in Nazareth, and then he comes, he leaves, and then he comes back. And when he comes back to his town, he's obviously a little bit different than when they had seen him before. And so they're like, this is Joseph's son, right? This is the carpenter's son. We, we remember him. He comes back, though, and he comes back, and he comes back un- and th- with this understanding. We understand now he's claiming to be the Messiah. He's complaining, claiming to be someone who's going to come and save our people. And they're like, this is Joseph's son. Come on. We watched him grow up. We watched him in, when he was a little boy. We know. And so what do they do? They don't accept him for who he is. They reject him. In fact, so adamantly that they, that they actually push him out to a hillside and almost throw him off a cliff because they're like, no way. We know who you are. You're not who you say you are. And they reject him. Can you imagine if you left Simi Valley and then you came back? Maybe you were born and raised here and you left for a period of time. And you come back and you're waiting to engage with all your relationships and all your friends. And you're like, ah, just like good old times. You walk back into this city and everyone's like, whoa, you're not the person we remember. In fact, you're not welcome here anymore. Can you imagine not being welcome in the town that you grew up in? Not going back to your high school and nobody cares about you anymore and you're walking around the city and you see people that you used to hang out with and they want nothing to do with you and they've completely rejected you. Not any of us have ever probably experienced that, but that's exactly what Jesus was walking through. He knew what it was to be abandoned and rejected. Also in Matthew chapter 26, verse 56, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane before he goes to the cross. And it says this of him. It says, but all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And then it says this, then all the disciples left him and fled. This is, remember, the, the 12 that he called to himself. These are, these are my guys. These are the ones who are going to go change the world. And as they're watching what's happening, they're realizing all of our hopes and dreams are dying because he's going to die. And that doesn't work for us. So we want to save ourselves. So we're out of here. And they all ran. And if that's not bad enough, so Jesus is completely alone. And then he tells Peter, you know, the guy who always is very prominent in the Gospels because he speaks up a lot, not always in the best context, but he talks a lot. And he, Jesus says, Peter, listen, even you, you're going to deny me. And Peter's like, no, no, he actually swears. He says, I swear I'll never deny you. And then if you read in the Gospels, then on the third time that Peter actually denies Jesus, their eyes meet. Can you imagine what that felt like for both Jesus and Peter? Peter was probably one of the closest people that Jesus knew on the planet at the time. And he makes, uh, he makes eye contact. And Peter is probably feeling completely undressed. Like, oh, I did it. I did what I said I wasn't going to do. And then Jesus is looking at Peter and his heart's breaking because even Peter had turned his back on him. So Jesus, and why is that important? Because one of the greatest issues for humanity is loneliness and rejection and to feel isolated, and to feel by ourselves. And Jesus fully understood what that meant for us to experience that. And then there's a fifth thing. Jesus was willing to embrace suffering. So he was willing to fully embrace what it is to be human. We talked about him being thirsty and hungry and tired, but he was, he subjected himself to far worse than that. We'll talk more in depth about it next week, but especially on his way to the cross, the physical abuse that Jesus endured is unbearable. We would, it, would, it would be considered inhumane today if something like this unfolded. So he's falsely accused, so he ends up getting mocked and spit on and punched repeatedly. And then we know that, that there's a, a crown of thorns that's made to mock him. It's, it's pushed down onto his head. And then he's forced to carry probably 100 pounds, anywhere from 50 to 100 pounds, a crossbeam on his, on his back. From what we know historically, he probably didn't drag the full cross because they already had crucifixion set up for an ongoing thing that the Romans would do. But he has to carry that. He then, before that even happens, he's severely beaten 
He's flogged, and so his back is completely exposed and ripped open. So he's bleeding, he's been mocked, he's been spit on, he's been punched, and he's experiencing all of that. We don't even know what that's like. But he was willing to endure that physical reality. Why? Because this is the journey that Jesus chose because he knew where it would lead. He knew it would lead him to the cross where he would die and to the resurrection that would give him power over death to demonstrate to all of us, this is how much God loves you to get you connected back with him. This is the journey that Jesus had to choose. So this is significant because Jesus knows us. He knows our experience. He knows what we've gone through. He knows what it is to be human. And he went through all of that because he's trying to demonstrate once again, this is how much I love you. So moving on from that, knowing those are the things that Jesus willingly embraced. So four things I want to conclude with it. That Jesus being God became man so he could do a number of things. He could accomplish a number of very important things that you and I need to embrace this morning. The first one is this. Jesus became man so he could experience fully our condition. Jesus didn't somehow just kind of stick his little toe in the water of humanity to see if it was the right temperature. He jumped into the deep end of being human in every aspect. This is important because we, we sometimes downplay this. Remember last week, let me read the passage we looked at last week. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 9, Paul says this of Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being human. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why is that so significant? Because it demonstrates the depth of love that God has for us and that no matter what you and I walk through in our experiences, there's somebody who knows exactly what you're experiencing. There's something that he knows about you that maybe you don't even know about yourself. And one of the things that we, we love to experience in our lives is we love to have some kind of bond and connection with somebody else who has something in common with us. That's what we look to. When we, when we come into a room full of people, we're looking for people who are like, le- like us or they've shared some experience that we've had. And, and, and we like that bond. We like what's familiar to us. But sometimes when we go through difficulties, we think there's nobody that knows what I'm going through. Nobody knows what I'm experiencing. Nobody has walked down this road yet. Jesus fully experienced humanity and does know that. Because if you and I have those kinds of people, we feel a bond with them. And some of us, we don't feel a bond with God because we think he doesn't understand what we're going through. And yet he understands more than we know of what we're walking through. Every step of what we walk through in our life, Jesus knows that because Jesus lived that. When we first moved down here from the Northwest, we obviously, Kim and I grew up down here. Courtney and Jordan were born down here. But we moved up to Oregon for seven years, and when we moved back down and we first got down here, John Looney, who's our associate pastor, he grew up in the Northwest. Now, if you've lived in the Northwest or you've visited, or if, even if you haven't, you'll, you probably will understand, there's a huge difference between Southern California and the Northwest. They might as well be two different countries. The climate's completely different. The culture is totally different. The people are completely different. They actually like it when it rains. And you're like, we would like rain, not if you lived up there, trust me. But it's just a whole different world. Their language is different. Like when you say, would you like soda or like Coca-Cola? They say, do you want pop? I'm like, what are you even talking about? There's different words that they use. It's just a different world up there. So when we first moved down here, I would start talking about something from Oregon. And if we were in a meeting, I'd turn to John and I'm like, you know. And John's like, totally, 
I get it. I know. I'm nor- I grew up in the Northwest. I know what you're talking about. And then I looked at the rest of the Southern California natives who are on staff or in leader, and they're like, we don't know. We don't understand. So every meeting, I, I would start talking about something in Oregon, and then I would find John in our eyes, I'd, and he'd be like, yeah, I got it. I know. I know what you're talking about. And I didn't realize that I was doing that almost every meeting until Harold, our media director, he, he actually, as w- I'm telling a story, and I turn to John in the middle of the meeting, and before I can even say it, Harold goes, John, you know. And I'm like, <laughs> and I looked at Harold, I'm like, do I really say it that much? He goes, you say it all the time. I'm like, oh, okay, maybe I should stop saying that. But there was this bond that John and I had right away because he understood, I understood his upbringing because I lived in it for seven years, and he understood where we were coming from because we had this bond. Now, when you think about, you and I have this idea that God doesn't understand. Like, you can't turn to Jesus and say, Jesus, you know. And you can, because he does. He does know what it is to be fully human. That's what's crazy. He understands the depth of what that looks like in our lives. So, second thing. Second thing that Jesus did in becoming a man so that he could accomplish for us is he did that so that he would know our struggles. He would know fully what it is to struggle as a human being. So a couple of very important passages. One of the things that sometimes we, I don't know where we get this idea, only probably because we think that he was only God, but Jesus was never tempted. Jesus wasn't tempted like I'm tempted. Come on, he couldn't have been. But listen to what the Bible tells us clearly. Two passages in Hebrews. Hebrews 2 verse 18 says, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus suffered. What does that mean? That means that Jesus was tempted as we are tempted. He suffered in his ability to say, I'm not going to respond to that temptation. He knows that. I'm convinced Jesus was a human being fully, and he was a man, and I guarantee there are women that passed by his way that in his mind he was tempted to give a second look or to think something inappropriately. You think, oh, how could you say that of Jesus? You mean Jesus, the human being who understands? That's what it's saying. He suffered. He subjected himself fully. But here's what's great. Listen to what it says in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. For we know that we do not have a high priest, talking about Jesus, who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, here's the key, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Think about that. You think, well, you know, if, if you're going through something, you, you want someone to help you, you always go to somebody who's gone through that same experience, don't you? Like, th- why? Because they can relate to you. Jesus went through the same experience that you did, but you know what he did that was different than you? He did it without sin. He suffered in his temptation, but he did it without sinning. So who's the person who understands you and your temptation more than anybody else? Jesus. Because he was there, and he knows what it looks like and feels like in the experience of it all. He knows what it is to be human. And if that's true, then you and I have to kind of get to the core of our own temptation and realize that Jesus was tempted in the same way. The core of our temptation usually comes in the form of absolute selfishness, which is at the core of who I am, I ultimately want everything to turn out for me best, even if it means at the expense of other people. And it comes in the form where we're tempted with easy fulfillment. Something comes along and says, ah, I want to be fulfilled. There's a hardware, there's an easy way. I want the easy way. That's what sometimes addiction offers us. I can do something in this moment that will give me the fix that I want in this moment because it doesn't require so much work, but then it only in- entangles us and enslaves us even more for that momentary what we think is fulfillment. Jesus subjected himself fully to that. 
Now think about that in, in our lives. Do, do we experience temptation like that? You better believe that we do. Every day that we wake up, we are tempted to be what? Absolutely selfish to the core. That's a part of our nature. That's what we're tempted to do, and that means that every situation that we're in, we usually have a decision. Am I going to do this for me, or am I going to do this for Jesus and other people? That's the, that's the dialogue that we have. Whether you know it or not, that's what's in there. Like, for example, even I know in my life, I'm guilty of this. I'll be willing to admit it. There are times when I'll do things that appear to be for the benefit of other people, but I know in the end, it's going to benefit me. Anybody want to admit you've ever done that? Come on. Raise your hands. You can't, we've all manipulated situations and people, making it look like, hey, I'm all about you, but really I'm all about me. That's the core of our temptation. We're tempted to do that. And Jesus, can you imagine? Jesus could have been tempted to do that. I'm just going to use humanity as a means to my end, so I really don't care about them. But he didn't. Why We, we talked about last week. He intentionally clothed himself in humanity, limited his ability as God for himself, but used that for our benefit because of his great love for you and for us, for I. So the second thing, or excuse me, the, the third thing is that Jesus became man so that he could feel our loneliness. We talked about this earlier, but I'm convinced from my own experience and experience of others, one of the greatest, deepest pains in our life is to experience loneliness. Now, some people come to me, well, I am an introvert and I love to be alone for a time, for a time, but then eventually you crave you crave relationship with God. You crave relationship with other people. It's a part of who we are. But loneliness is something that we all have to come to grips with, and Jesus experienced that to the most profound level. Listen to what the prophet Isaiah said of Jesus in Isaiah 53, 3. Of Jesus, he says, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. He was rejected. He was isolated. He was lonely. Talk about the, the depth of his loneliness. Can, can we understand that? What is loneliness? There's three quick things that I think help define what loneliness is. The first one is the absence of genuine relationships. That means that you can, you can actually walk into a room full of people and com feel completely alone because you don't really know those people. You don't have a genuine relationship with somebody that goes deeper than just hi and goodbye. So you feel lonely. You can be surrounded with people, but you don't really know them and they don't really know you. So you can sit in a room with hundreds of people and feel completely isolated. Anybody ever felt that? I have. That's, that's what it feels like. And Jesus felt that. Here, here's the thing. When I read through the gospel, I think there's only one relationship, and this is even questionable, that I could say that was genuine. That was a genuine, that relationship was genuine for Jesus. And the only person I can come up with is mom, Mary. That's it. Because honestly, all the other relationships Jesus had were he was a means to somebody's end. Think about it. When the crowd showed up, why were they there? Because they wanted to worship the Messiah? No, because they thought that Jesus could perform miracles for them. That he, could, he spoke with authority. So they were like, this guy's amazing. We gotta go see him. How about his disciples? Oh, they were all about establishing God's kingdom. No, they were about establishing Israel's kingdom. And they thought Jesus was the ticket to that. He was the Messiah for there. That's why we know there are multiple times the disciples get together and they start arguing. Who's going to be the greatest? Who gets to sit in the right hand and the left hand? Who's going to be? In? And, and Jesus said, you're missing it. Because Jesus was a means to an end. And, and Mary's the only one that she shows up in the narrative that seems to actually, even there's sometimes though when she, she's, I think she gets it, gets it wrong too. But she's the only one you think, okay, so let's think about this. On a good day, the only ally or the only person that Jesus had a genuine relationship with was his mom. No offense, moms. That's a lonely place. 
if she's, that's the only one person on the face of the earth that you have a genuine relationship with, that's isolation, that's loneliness. There's a second thing that loneliness is. It's the absence of people who are like us or understand us. We gravitate towards what we know, what's familiar, don't we? And when we feel, ever, you know, ever said of this of yourself, I feel out of place. I don't feel like I belong. What are we saying? I feel lonely. And again, that can happen when you're surrounded by tons of people. But you look around, you're like, nobody thinks like me, talks like me, looks like me, acts like me, has interests like me, so I feel totally out of place here. In fact, th this happened the, th the other day. Kim and Courtney and I took a quick little excursion down to the Grove, you know, in the south, southern part of Hollywood uh, with the other five billion people in L.A. who decided to do it on the same day. And so when we got down there, if you, don't, if you haven't been down to the Grove, there's like, there's like this sister place called the Americana in Glendale. It's this shopping area that's set up like a little village. It feels like you're walking into Disneyland. And there's housing around and everything. It's really cool. They have a little trolley that goes through the street and a fountain and music that plays. And so they have a Christmas tree. It's really kind of this picturesque, kind of like Norman Rockwell kind of feel when you walk in. So we're like, well, we like the Americana. Let's go down to the Grove. So we drove down to the Grove, and we get down there, and it, it's, it's in obviously highly populated, lots of traffic. So we finally get there, and when we come down the elevator out of the parking structure, we turn the corner, and there's like, it, it's like this kind of information desk, but probably should be called like the concierge, you know, which is probably more appropriate, because there's people all decked out, and they're all dressed. And then I was looking at this counter, and then I turned, and next to them is parked a Bentley. And I'm like, okay, this is not the Americana in Glendale. This is a whole nother world. Okay, I rarely see a Bentley, and one's parked there. So as we turn from that, we go out into kind of the area where there's this fountain and everything. As we're walking out, I'm just looking at people, and I'm thinking, these people are at a whole nother level of kind of snootiness and affluence and kind of I'm all it. And you can just feel it when you're walking around, and everyone's kind of grumpy and, and like, you know, just kind of looking down on you. And, and I remember as we're walking, we're like, this is really cool, but I'm thinking, this is not like the Americana. In fact, honestly, I was, I was walking, as we're walking, kind of making our way through people, I, I'm watching people give us looks. Like, they're looking me up and down like uh, something's wrong. I'm like, okay, I got jeans, I got a flannel on. I guess, obviously, I didn't get the memo I should wear, like, suit and tie. I felt like solely, I totally undressed by people. I'm like, what's wrong with me? We lasted an hour. And I'm like, I want to go back to the Americana, because those are people like me. I walk around the Grove, and I just feel like, I just, I guess I'm not good enough for this crowd. I guess that, you know, and I've been told this, we didn't really bother the shop shop, but people said, if you want to buy anything, go to the American Con. If you want to look, you go to the Grove, because you can't afford it if you have to ask for the price. And that's the way it felt. And then once we left, I'm like, oh, thank goodness we're out of there. But how can you be around literally thousands of people and feel completely isolated like you don't belong? Because you don't have that link. You're isolated. You're lonely. Jesus was the God of the universe in human flesh. There was nobody else like him. Talk about being lonely. There was nobody else like him. There another thing that's true of, of loneliness is it's the absence of true allies in life. You know, we have those people that even when we mess up, they know they're, they're going to have our back. They're going to be there for us. They're going to really be on our side. Jesus didn't have that. He didn't have that. Maybe we found ourselves in those moments where everybody else does flee and we are isolated by ourselves. Guess who's still present in that moment? Jesus is. Because he knows exactly what you feel because he's experienced it himself. He knows your loneliness because he's been rejected himself. And then the final thing is this. Jesus became man so that he could express his love. He expresses his love to us. So his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, not only are the way that, that God provides a way for us to be back in relationship with him through Jesus' death, paying for our sin that separates us from God and his resurrection that gives us power over death so that when we die physically, it is not the end 
There's something beyond this. Jesus accomplished that, but in doing that, it is not just his provision for us. It's his demonstration. This is what just baffles me. When somebody comes to me and says, how can a loving God and then fill in the blanks? And there's this assumption, God doesn't love people. It's because they don't know the story. They don't know the truth. The light hasn't come on for them. They don't understand that God has gone to great lengths to demonstrate his love for all of humanity. We're the ones that are slow in the process. We're the ones that are slightly thick-skulled that we can't really understand what he's saying. We don't see it yet until eventually the Holy Spirit works on us and our eyes are open and we realize, oh, now I see it. Now I understand how much God loves me. In fact, it's a great definition of it in John chapter 3 verse 16. Anybody know of that verse? And verse 17, it's, you know, it's everywhere. So what does God say? What does Jesus in his own words say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Jesus speaking of himself, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Listen to verse 17 though. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Why is that important? I I've experienced it too many times. I've counseled with people too many times. And I can, they don't even have to say it, I can tell. They live with this constant idea that God is mad and ticked off and is looking to condemn them. They live with that reality. It just, it just crushes them. And they live with this, that God is eternally disappointed with me. And what brings God the greatest joy is when I mess up so he can crush me. That's not biblical. In fact, if you were here when we went through the series on the, the minor prophets, remember Remember, God says, I don't want to come in wrath, but I want to come in what? Compassion and mercy towards my people. That's the heart of God. And this is significant because you and I have to understand something. God has gone to the greatest lengths. Jesus experienced all this humanity. Why? Because he wants to demonstrate to the world, I do love you. And the question for us and the question for our city and the question for our world is, do we really know? Or is it just cliche? Oh, God loves you. What does that even mean? That means that God was willing to go through all of this, that Jesus was willing to endure all of humanity so he could demonstrate ultimately that how this is what his love looks like. And this all goes on behind the scenes of humanity, and we don't even know what's happening. As I was driving down L.A. Avenue, I am looking at people in the face, and I'm convicted with this reality. Do they even know? Do they even know that all of their life, God has been orchestrating circumstances to encounter them, and throughout human history, God has come into human history and lived as a human being and died for them, and they don't even know. They don't even know what Jesus has gone through for them. And if they knew, it would change everything about their lives. And then the question comes to me, do I really know? Do I live with the reality every day of God's profound love for me, or do I forget? And we do. And, and God is relentless in his pursuit of us. Relentless. He is constantly working. Even once you, he catches up with you and you realize who he is and you give your life to Jesus, he doesn't stop pursuing. He keeps orchestrating. He keeps working out circumstances in your life to get your attention. And this all happens while you and I are completely oblivious to what's going on. Anybody ever had a surprise party in your life that was given for you? Anybody? Okay, good. There was three first service. I felt really bad for first service. I'm like, well, you got lame parents, I guess. I don't know what it is. I have, I've had two surprise parties in my life. One when I was young, and, I, and I, I'm always suspicious. And I figured it out, but I pretended, oh, yeah, I didn't have any idea. I knew exactly what was going on. But then when I was 16, my parents got me completely. I had no idea. I went to a high school football game with my dad in the afternoon. We came home in the evening, and as we're driving into our driveway, I see through the front window into the living room of our house, my brother-in-law, who was one of my best friends, 
standing in the living room like, what is he doing here? And then I watch him look out the window, and then he turns around and he runs. I'm like, okay, something is weird here. Why is he running? He never runs. And then as we drive, our, we had a long driveway that went past the house into the garage, which detached in the back. And as we drove into the backyard, the backyard was filled with my friends and family members, and they got me. I had no idea. But the coolest thing is when you've had a surprise party, then you, you know, everybody's excited and they hug you, and then, you, then it kind of calms down. And then you're like, how did you do this? How did you pull this off? How did I not know this was coming? And then, then the dialogue comes, which is like, well, you know, remember when you walked in on that conversation and it got a little awkward? Yeah, we were talking about you. And remember when you saw that box and you were wondering what it was? Yeah, that was about you. And then all these things that you didn't put two and two together now all start to make sense. You're like, oh, now I get it. Now I know why you've been acting weird for the last month. Anybody know that? Same thing happens when you come to Jesus. You start looking back over your life and you go, Oh, I thought you weren't present there. I, di I didn't know you were at work there. I, I thought I was by myself, but you were there. Oh, I, I didn't know that that circumstance wasn't only because that was what was happening in my life, but you would have done something in that moment because you were trying to get my attention. Now I see it. And all those moments in our life where you start to see God has always been at work and will always be at work. Do we really know? That's the question for each one of us. So what I'm going to ask you to do in a moment, in fact, why don't you do it right now, because I want you to see a picture. In fact, as we're doing that, the worship team is going to come and join us for one last song. I want to read a passage of scripture, and then we're going to pray together, and then we'll sing one last song together. But there's something really important in Luke chapter 15, and I want you to close your eyes, because I want you to capture the vision of what's happening. God loves people so much that when something happens here on this planet, it triggers something in heaven with him. There's a couple stories in Luke chapter 15, but they all kind of summarize with, with this concept that when there's somebody who turns from the way they used to live, the Bible uses the word repent, and turns towards God, there's a celebration. Listen to these words. This is Luke 15, verse 7. It says, there that says, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Verse 10 in that same chapter says, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. I want you to capture right now, when the light comes on for us, when we realize the profound love of God and that he has been pursuing us our entire lives, when the light goes on and we surrender our lives to him and we stop running, the Bible tells us there's a party in heaven. There's a celebration. Even with the angels, there's this joy that comes over all of God's presence because one person, one person has realized his love and has turned from what they used to be to what he wants them to be. That happens every day across the globe. And that's something that can happen here today. So I'm asking you with your eyes closed right now in this moment to be able to picture what God is doing right now in you. You may have never come to a place in your life where you have realized the profound love of God, all of what Jesus was willing to walk through for you to demonstrate his love, even though he didn't have to. He was God. He could have stayed up in heaven. He could have been more about his self-interest than our interest, but he was about us. And today, for the first time, for the maybe maybe not the first time, but for the, the depth of what you feel today is different than any time you've experienced this before. 
that now you're starting to understand that this God who you were confused about or this God that you thought didn't love people actually loves you more than you ever thought. And in that, God is calling you to something in his love. He doesn't want you just to feel his love. He wants you to know his love. And the way that we know the love of God is through knowing Jesus. Knowing him in a way that is a relationship that begins to transform who we are. Not only does Jesus bring the forgiveness of sin because he's death on the cross, but he breathes life into our soul and shows us and teaches us and draws us in to the life that he created us to live. If I'm describing something that you desire and you know that God is pulling you towards something different, what he's asking of you today is to make a commitment. It's not to make a commitment of some religious duties or activities or a commitment to try to be a better person or a commitment to to try to undo the brokenness and sin and failure of your past. What he's calling you to is to surrender, to surrender your life, your way of living, your way of thinking, the way that you've done things in the past because now you realize that God actually loves you and if he loves you as much as you know that he loves you or think that he loves you, He has something in store for you that isn't easy, but it's so much better because it's a life that realizes that even in my failures, God provides forgiveness through Jesus. Even in my loneliest moments, God is present with Jesus in my life. Even in the moments where I feel grief and sorrow and pain, Jesus is present. Even in my temptation and my addiction and my failure, I am not absent from him. He is present with me because he's constantly drawing me back into the life that he wants me to live, a life that is right with him, a life that is right with God. If I'm describing what you desire right now, I'm gonna ask you to do something that is very simple. I'm gonna ask you, it might be in your own mind, it might even be audibly, you're gonna talk to God. It's called prayer. It's a conversation with God where you begin to share what you were feeling, share your heart. I'm going to ask you right now, if this is your desire to make that kind of commitment of surrender to him, that you talk to him right now and say, this is what I'm feeling. I feel your love. I know this, I'm experiencing something. I don't know all the answers, but I know it's, it's drawing me to surrender to you. You just begin to tell him right now, and in surrendering, you are saying, I'm choosing to move forward as I turn from what I used to be, the way I used to live so that Jesus can make me what I'm supposed to be. He can make me new as I embrace the fullness of his love. And then for those of you who've come to know Jesus, I'm gonna encourage you because this is my experience. I've known Jesus for decades, but I didn't experience what I experienced in my my car last month and in a meeting last month. I'd never experienced the depth of that before. I felt not a, a burden that crushed me, but I felt a weight that I'd never felt before about God's profound love for people, for me, for the world, for our city. And I am praying for you today that once again, if the light has dimmed, that God would bring the light back to life in you. That you would feel his love for you. You would feel his love for the city. You would, you would feel his love for your family members and your neighbors and your coworkers and the people you go to school with and the people you see all the time, that you would be filled with this love for them as God loves them. So, Lord Jesus, as we come to this moment right now, we ask, and I ask, Lord Jesus, would you, by your spirit, would you come and would you allow the weight of your love to just rest on us? 
And Lord, if that means we feel something deep inside or that means that the outflow is tears or emotion, Lord, would you release that in us, whatever it is that you're wanting to do in these moments, so that, Lord, if it's for the first time or if, it's, Lord, it's something else that we need kind of to be re-energized by your light and your life and your love in our lives, Lord, that you would do that right now. You would do that in these moments. And, Lord, I even pray as, as we come into the next few weeks and we hit Christmas and then New Year's and, Lord, we'll be in, encountering our family members and, and sometimes that's good and sometimes for others that's tough. I pray, Lord, even the family members that we struggle with, that you would, you would clothe us in your love, that, Lord, where there might have been division, there might have been pain in the past, Lord, that you would bring reconciliation relationships because we would experience your love, family members would know your love, and the result would be, Lord, not a day filled with presents and Christmas trees, and all those things are great, but Lord, it'd be a day and a season filled with the profound presence of your love in everything that we experience. So Lord Jesus, would you do that? Lord, and as we sing this one last song together, Lord, would you just allow your spirit to move on us? Let us feel your love. Let us experience your love. Let us know that you're present with us. And Lord, let us not be the same as we leave as when we came, but we would be changed because we've encountered you and your love in our lives, Jesus. We thank you. In your name.